My name is Devin Kadiyama. I am uh, the education reporter for WFPL, Louisville Public Media. And for those of you who don't know, we have um, begun a year-long education project. Uh, it's called The Next Louisville. And what it means is more education features, stories, uh, more education news specials, so hour-long uh, in-depth reports or, or conversations with experts and um, people from the schools and, and things like that, and also community forums like the one tonight. This is the first really public open forum that we've had, and the turnout is, is pretty good. I'm, I'm pretty excited about the, everyone who's come out tonight, especially on this on this uh, high-stakes evening. Um, so thank you very much. I really appreciate that. And I just want to first by, uh, start by having my guests introduce themselves, who they are, um, what brought them here, and where they came from. So we could start with uh, Mr. Payton. Hi. Thank you all for being here, and thanks for inviting me to be involved. My name's Tony Payton. I'm the Director of Policy for Mayor Greg Fisher. In that role, actually, education is part of my portfolio. The uh, other issues, because the city does deal with a little bit of everything, fall uh, on the shoulders of other folks, but I help to sort of air traffic control some of those things. But I'm actually a native Kentucky, and I grew up uh, in Paducah, Kentucky, just west of Paducah, but right in McCracken County, and moved to Louisville to go to the University of Louisville uh, 23 years ago. And after graduate school, I actually uh, started working for the National Center for Family Literacy, which is headquartered here. I had a little short detour with a member of Congress after graduate school, but came back and uh, for 14 years, I flew to D.C. about every other Tuesday and was working on education policy as it relates to parent engagement, particularly with families uh, where the parents have low levels of education themselves and then their children typically were in the range of zero to eight. And so worked on any number of issues from the Elementary and Secondary Education Act, the Workforce Investment Act, Head Start. CSBG, the Community Services Block Grant Program, uh, Child and Adult Care Food Program. So all these things are things that I've kind of, over the last 17 years, worked with, and now I have the opportunity to sort of look at it at a local level, and I can tell you that it's, a, it's been a big learning curve. I think they should take folks that do federal education policy every couple years, make them spend a couple years at the local level to see what they're getting right and wrong. So I can say that from experience. Thank you. Mr. Carpenter. Sure. My name is uh, Bradley Carpenter, and I am a second-year professor at the University of Louisville, assistant professor there. Um, I was a public school teacher, assistant principal, and principal in Texas, and made my way here to Louisville primarily because the University of Louisville offered an opportunity to work in schools as a professor. Um, and so I wanted to be at a university that had a real service mission and wanted to give back to the community, and I found that at the University of Louisville. And uh, I study uh, community involvement, site-based decision-making, um, ed leadership in general, and also study issues of how do we better prepare our educational leaders for urban context. Um, specifically, how do we prepare them to address issues of race and racism? So this is very uh, not only personally important to me as a father of three children under the age of 10, all girls, um, but it's also professionally important to me. Um, something that when I came to Louisville, I knew that I wanted to make a difference um, in JCPS and the broader Kentucky community and be getting, and, and given that opportunity uh, on a daily basis. And I just want to say that uh, my education philosophy class, a little shout out to them this evening, that they are all here with me, uh, EDD students, aspiring leaders and principals and 
a lot of JCPS employees here tonight, so I want to thank them for sacrificing their time and sticking around. Well, thank you. And we'll also be joined by District 1 uh, JCPS board member Diane Porter. She's, uh, she's in traffic right now, so she'll join us in just a bit. I'll have her in introduce herself. I forgot to mention that uh, the next Louisville project is a partnership between Louisville Public Media, Chase, and the Community Foundation of Louisville. Um, so we just wanted to say thank you to them for, for helping also support this project. Um, the discussion tonight is around what is Louisville doing to support public education and what can it do? I think there's a lot of misperception about what each little area, the, the board, the district itself, um, and the city, what roles they really play in, in public education in a city. So tonight we're, we're hoping to kind of get a sense of what some of those issues are and how some cities are, are um, tackling public education in, in certain ways and ways that Louisville is, is looking at education. Um, so Mr. Payton, I just want to start with you and, and just ask um, what initiatives the past couple years with Fisher's administration have you been working on? Uh, we know, you know, 55,000 degrees and a couple others, but if you can just briefly uh, introduce what has been the, the most recent initiatives. Okay. So um, when Mayor Fisher took office, he talked about three things, a healthy community, compassionate community, community, and a community of lifelong learners. So he gave us a charge to start looking at how we can help do that piece. So whether it's being chair of the board of 55K, which Devin just mentioned, the other areas that we've been looking at, one big one is out of school time. So I know that different people have talked about, and this will be just for context, and I won't say it again, but I think Dewey was telling me that if a kid never misses a day of school, they spend 90% of their time outside of the school. Uh, we were in a meeting the other day where they said two-thirds of the uh, achievement gap uh, could be related to out-of-school effects. And we know that from Gallup that anywhere from about 30% of adults have some direct connection to the public schools, which means 70% don't. So we have to think about how do we get those other 70% engaged in this process. So for us in doing that, we look and said, JCPS has this building. They're working inside there. We've got a whole lot of stuff outside of that. First area is the community centers. We have 12 community centers throughout Jefferson County um, since, I guess it was in the late, mid to late 2000s, there were a number of cuts that city government faced. And we've been looking at how do we start to put more back into that. So currently we have a facilities review underway to see from the technology standpoint how we can take full advantage of what Jefferson County Public Schools has done around their uh, everyone learns and having Study Island and SuccessMaker available in those community centers. We're looking at how, and we have done this, uh, reconfigure some of our CDBG money, community development block grant money, so that we're able to support out-of-school time programming, and then also looking at how do we get community-based organizations more engaged in the community centers to provide that programming. So over this uh, past winter, we actually did a winter break. It was sort of a holiday camp. So we were able to get funding to do two weeks worth of camp at that point in time. We had about 200 kids involved in that. So the community centers is one thing that we're very focused on. The other areas is the Louisville Education Employment Project. We provide funding in partnership with JCPS to do that work, where we have uh, there are career planners that work in 15 of the high schools, working with folks who uh, meet a number of points that you think, well, that might affect their ability to succeed. 
whether they're two grade, uh, two grade levels behind, have missed 15 or more days, and working to get those folks uh, ready and engaged in college or work or the military after they leave. And then I would just mention one more. I've got plenty of these. But uh, grade level reading, we're looking at uh, children age zero to eight. What are those areas in school readiness, which you saw on the front page of the paper not too long ago, school attendance, which is very much something that we as a community and family are engaged in getting these young kids to school, and then the other is the summer learning loss. So those are some areas that we're looking at. Now, if you can't talk about the process for, for getting those initiatives in place, does that come from the district saying, you know what, we need the support, we need the help in these areas? Does it come from your own research, the administration's research? Where does it come from? It comes from both, actually. The the Louisville Education Employment Project, that's one that's been going on for a long time, and that was a joint project. Um, same with the uh, community schools, which is another partnership that we have. But the out-of-school time piece, again, it was Jefferson County Public Schools, Metro United Way, and Louisville Metro Government getting together to say, what is it that we need to be doing? But then uh, with uh, the attendance piece, that's one where we were putting together and doing some research for our All-American All City Award application and realized that that's something that we really needed to focus on, particularly attendance as it's related to kindergarten, first, second, and third grade. Uh, we've been joined by Ms. Porter, uh, Diane Porter, District uh, 1, JCPS board member. Thank you so much for making it out. I know you're in traffic. And sorry to just to throw you on into the conversation, but... I'm Diane Porter, District 1 School Board Representative, and you are currently sitting in District 1, so thank you very much for being here. Thank you to WFPL for this opportunity as well. Um, what do I do on the board? Yeah, currently. Hey, you know what? Why, don't you, why, don't you, why don't you relax right now? But, but yes, she's here. We'll, get, we'll, be, we'll get back to her in just a second. Well, I'm currently serving as chair on the board, and I came to the board by appointment. Uh, board member Elmore resigned, and uh, we had to apply to be uh, on the board. So I was appointed to the board, and then I was elected to the board. Uh, I am almost two years into a term. I spent a half a year appointed. So um, it's a pleasure. It's work, and uh, we're working together very well as a board. We have three new board members uh, that joined us in January. So uh, we're very focused on achievement and what we need to do as a board to provide resources to schools and to make sure that schools have everything they need for students to be successful. That's probably the long answer, sorry. <laughs> uh, Mr. Carpenter, you've spent a lot of time in these schools working with teachers, especially teachers who are working in struggling schools. I wonder mm -hmm. if you can talk about the importance, if there is one, of strong partnerships with the community from a teacher's perspective. I, I've spent a lot of times with teachers and you know, a lot of them tell me how much time and effort they put into teaching and uh, how much work it really is. I'm curious where that meets the community, where, where what they're sure. doing in their classroom with their individual uh, students kind of meets what's going on in the, in the community. Right. As I said, I was a product of uh, my parents were both public school teachers, so I grew up understanding the, the common plight of a teacher. And what I can tell you is when uh, my first year of graduate school at the University of Texas, I worked, I uh, was responsible for the Houston region, Region 4 in Texas. So all the uh, low-performing schools in Houston uh, I was an education specialist that wrote improvement plans for those schools that were going through the same process um, that the schools are going through here. Um, and I don't think the general public understands the complexities of what public school teachers and administrators are dealing with on a daily basis. So 
to answer your question from the plight of the teacher, um, those relationships and establishing community partnerships are extremely important for a number of different reasons. One um, is one of the things that we talk about uh, in our classes is educating the public about what it is that we are up against as far as high-stakes accountability. What does that really mean in educating the public in a way that they can authentically be engaged in the conversation in the broader community? Um, so whereas instead of reading uh, headlines or just getting snippets of uh, poor information, really educating the parents and broader community about what are the levers of AYP. Why is the school called bad in public? What does that really mean? And so then we can have a different conversation about why it's important for your kids to be at school, et cetera. And then the broader partnership issue, um, there's just too many singular issues in low-performing schools specifically because, let's be honest, in the United States, more most of our low-performing schools are in urban communities, and they're serving uh, kids of color, and they're serving low SES kids. And so there are a number of opportunities. It's not a deficit only, but there are a number of unique challenges to those schools. And so to ask a teacher to solve all of those challenges or meet all of those opportunities alone in a singular fashion um, is just not thinkable. But what we can do is partner them up with willing people in the community um, that are willing to pitch in and really work for the teacher behind the scenes. And that's what we talk about in class is building a system of support that supports the mission of the school, working behind the scenes to support the mission that the school already has in place, but addressing some of those issues and needs that maybe are not uh, previously understood by the community writ large. Now, what are some of the challenges to doing that? I imagine that is a, a big Think, big thinker right. type of position. Is that the principal's uh, really big challenge? I mean, is that the principal's yeah. challenge? Is that, um, I mean, we talk a lot about sure. making this a community-wide issue, but really right. where does it fall? Where does the line fall for, for making those final decisions? I think it's a challenge on multiple levels. So we just had this conversation this evening. Where do we find the time as educational leaders, specifically principals, to make all of this happen? Now there's certainly supports from the district and their supports in different regions and, and JCPS specifically, but it's still difficult as an instructional leader, which is what we're expecting our principals to be today, to also be the community engagement person and to delegate enough in a way that that capacity can continue to be grown. And that's why it's important uh, for all partners to pitch in. But it's really, that's another thing that is a misconception in the public is that um, you know, we're just not working hard enough. The principals and, and public school teachers are just not working hard enough or they could solve these issues. And I sit with the most intelligent uh, aspiring principals twice a week, and I can guarantee you they're working hard enough. They're trying to figure out how to manage their time better to create those partnerships. And it is a big idea that we need to distill into practical practices uh, that, that uh, are manageable for school leaders and teachers. Now, Ms. Porter, does the size of the district present any challenges for, for presenting open lines of communication or for um, making sure everybody's on the same page? Maybe not the same goals within each school, but having the same um, emotion and, and, I guess, goals as a district moving forward trying to improve student achievement. 
I think one of the things that has helped us tremendously is the reorganization of the district in that we now have area superintendents that work with 20 plus schools as opposed to before we had an area superintendent that was responsible for 80 schools. So the goal is for the area superintendent and the people working with them to be directly in the schools communicating and to give the same message. And they meet together as a team so it's not like that they are different parts of the world. They, they have a meeting place where they sit down and talk about progress and concerns and things that they need to work on. Communication is a big word for a big reason because just like we're sitting here talking tonight, some people will hear us. There will be other people that will not hear us. There will be some people that will pick up the paper and read about us in the paper. There will be other people that don't read about it in the paper. So communication is something that we are always working to improve to make sure that we're getting the message out multiple ways so that everyone understands what the message is. But I think clearly by the redesign of what, how we do our work every day that the district is better and will continue to be better. I wonder what systems are set up in place to get that community voice in the conversation. I've, I've attended several board meetings. I know there's always a period, I believe at the end of the meeting, where the public can address the school board. Not many people go to school board meetings for various reasons, but what other lines of communication does a district have or does the city have with the community to kind of get a sense of what they're feeling other than, like, for example, the public forum today, uh, which was very community-driven, that was a great example of, of a you know, group coming together and a lot of people coming together. But what other means on the day-to-day -day level does the district and the city both have uh, to communicate with the community? Well, um, one of the things that always works is people pick up the phone and call. Does that, is that, yeah, that, that really does happen. Or if you'd like to look at some of my emails, they email. So uh, they call the superintendent's office. They call uh, the local school. They call the counselor. So they reach out and they contact, and whether it's by phone, whether it's by email. And I do understand everybody does not have email. And sometimes they just walk in. If they have a question, uh, they just go to the office and try to get their question answered. So um, there are various ways that people uh, attempt to get their questions answered. A lot of times if they come to a board member, we may not know the answer, and we quickly send it to the superintendent's office and it goes to the uh, correct person so that they can get back uh, with the parent if there's an issue. I'm just curious, is that difficult for you? Do you get lots of emails, lots of calls just on a weekly basis or is that something that's manageable and you can actually follow up with each person? It's manageable. Um, you would like to follow up as soon as you receive an email. The reality of it is that that does not happen. I try to, we all try to answer our emails as quickly as possible. And I mean, that's I, true for me too, right. in, in work, so. Uh, <laughs> in the real world. Um, do we get a lot? Uh, I don't know what a lot is, but I want the community to know that they can contact a board member and that we will try to get the answer for them. I think it depends on what's going on. Uh, in the district at that time. Uh, for example, as we were beginning to make assignments for schools for uh, the fall, 
as those letters go out. If they're the yes letter, we won't get a call. If it's a no letter, we'll probably get a call. And then we will send that over to Dr. Radoski's office, and they will take care of that. So it, it depends on what's happening at that particular time of the district. If it's budget time, we get lots of emails about um, tax time, I guess is the better t term to use. Uh, we get lots, lots of uh, emails and even stopped in the Kroger about that. So, so they recognize you. That's good. Um, and, and the like city, to, yeah, I'd, please. I'd like to add that uh, one thing that we actually also receive emails about Jefferson County Public Schools, and, and we have a, a, a fairly simple process in which we actually, we do forward those back to JCPS for them to answer, and then we tell the constituent, we forward it to the appropriate, I mean, we don't let it just end there. We make sure that we have a protocol so that we're able to communicate back to JCPS about, you know, someone has come to us with an issue. And so it's the same way. They certainly recognize the mayor and they will come up and say, oh, I've got an issue. And we try to follow that up with an open line of communication with the school district. But then also on other things, uh, one good example is the violence prevention work group that we have. We occasionally have different groups that get together and oftentimes education is a very important component. It was one entire chapter of the community's report back to the mayor on violence. And so that's going to be something that we continue to pull people together to talk about these things. Same with the grade level reading plan when we were putting that together. We had community committees around these different topic areas of school readiness, attendance, and summer learning loss. So we try to have that type of conversation. You were talking about uh, community schools earlier? Yes. Um, well, explain what those are. Sure, sure. And this is another uh, project, and I don't know how long ago. I'm looking at Bob. I can't remember how many years ago this started, but the idea is that we provide half the resources. Jefferson County Public Schools provides the other half for an, uh, a community school coordinator. It's in eight different schools in the district and one of the things they do is they do a community needs assessment to see what types of programming would be is needed in that area and then they provide it in the schools so it some of it might be for the adults or the parents and others might be additional academic instruction for the kids so it varies based on the community needs one thing that we're trying to do and I actually recently met with the uh, community school coordinators to talk with them about how they can share information with our community centers as we're going about figuring out getting more programming there so that we're not duplicating but we can actually complement because there are some areas where the community schools and the community centers are fairly close together and then other areas where it's one or the other. Might those schools also include things like health care? Not, I'm not aware of health care in the existing eight this is, uh, you know, so in Oak, uh, Oakland, where they do really full-blown community schools, they actually, I think, maybe have one building where the health center is connected to the actual building because it was built from the ground up that way, but not here. And also, Cincinnati has a, a similar program where they, they do community schools, and they have a series of services offered in each school. They've uh, been touted as, as a working model for... for um, for just something that a school district is doing with a community, mm -hmm. with with all the the city and the services that, that are provided, but yeah. what what presents some of the major challenges for for Louisville? Does, is Louisville interested in doing well? So like that? so let me just add that uh, neighborhood place is something that Louisville has that provides access to that, which is a national model for 
co-location of service, whether it's some state, city, and the school district service in one place. So that's something that we currently have that other folks come here and look at to see how they do it. So I can't remember. I think the schools have the most of the facilities for neighborhood plays. I think there's eight with a and ten total, a couple satellite spots. So and we're the, on the front edge on on those things. And the city uh, is also working, I believe, with its out of school time charter to to link up some of these services, or to at least link up some of the data with yes. some of the after school. So so that the out of school time coordinating council is made up of Jefferson County Public Schools. Louisville Metro Government, Metro United Way, and looking at several things, looking at sort of reliable data, the sharing of data across that so that the right kids are getting the right service at the right time. We're looking at improving the quality, thinking about what are some program standards, because out of school time is, you know, it's, it's not a system per se. And so then we're looking at how do we also expand access to those. Those are sort of the three big areas that we're looking at with the out-of-school time coordinating council. Uh, Mr. Carpenter, did, when you were in working in the schools and working close to these um, these teachers who were in some of the lowest performing schools, right. was there that, those partnerships with uh, some of the community centers or with the um, programs out of school as far as data sharing is concerned? Was there any of that going on? You know, I think that we were behind we being uh, the schools I was working with in Houston, and then even when I was a principal myself uh, in Central Texas, um, behind in the data sharing piece. So what you had is this kind of fragmentation of different providers willing to help, and then trying to organize that on the school level is very complicated. You have willing hands and willing uh, persons with the energy to do good things for schools, and still trying to organize that at the school level and then share data in a way that makes sense to show this partnership really works. So we know with No Child Left Behind, even when uh, this uh, model went into place as far as uh, considering schools in Tier 1 and Tier 2, uh, the Supplemental Education Services was started. Um, and we had no way to evaluate whether SES servers worked or not, so we had people showing up saying, I can tutor your students after school or during school, uh, but there was no evaluation system that was put into place. It was an idea and policy that was put into place before the evaluation system was set up to uh, decide if it could work or not, and I think that's the, the back and forth between policy and theory, and then how does that work in practice and catching up to how do we evaluate these partnerships in the community? Are they bringing value? Are they adding value to our kids' lives? Are they adding value to the parents' lives? And I think that's something that higher ed, uh, speaking on the behalf of higher ed, we have to do a better job of researching those things to provide information back to communities. Uh, I want to share just something that we, a few of us in this room, experienced this afternoon during a, a community forum that was talking about um, the, the challenges that some of the low-performing areas are, are facing in the, in the district. And I kind of want to get your opinions because both of you were there, uh, Mr. Payton and Ms. Porter. Uh, they were saying the idea uh, that JCPS is a large district. Um, it takes time to see change. It takes time for things to be implemented and for that to, to see the effects. Somebody was saying at the forum that the change comes from individual communities doing their thing and saying, this is working for us in our community in this way. Can the district support us? Can the city support us in any way? I'm curious if you think that holds any weight, if, the, if you think that line of thinking of if community members 
get together and, and have a, a, a miniature working model, that that is, is something that the city or the school district should support and adopt? Or do you think that what the city and, and district are doing right now is, is on the path to success? I'll start by saying that it was Dr. Um, Atkins. 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 Uh, yeah. Atkins. I'm sorry. I've, it was he was talking about what they did in Lexington in terms of as a community starting small, collecting data, looking at what they're doing. I mean, I think both my boss, I know Dr. Hargan's very focused on data. Well, they started small. They built the case at the community level and then expanded that in Fayette County. And it was something where they weren't waiting for the policy change. They were saying, we're going to do this now because we as a community need to have a community solution to our problem. I th yeah, and, and I'm curious, from a city point of view, if, if somebody came to the city and said, look, this is working, is the city in a position to actually even help out? Well, sh sure. As I mentioned, there are, there are plans, that there are, there are partnerships that we're currently engaged in with JCPS, whether it's LEAP, community schools, any neighborhood place. Those things, when I say partnerships, those are resources. There are funds that go into that. We certainly don't have unlimited resources, but when the data says, oh, this is really working, then yes, there's certainly, I mean, we have people every day come and say, oh, we want to do this, we want to, but it's about the data and about what they're doing, but sure. And is there room in, in JCPS uh, to maneuver a, a working model, whatever that may look like? Is there is there room to share resources to, to a, either an organization or to... Uh, a neighborhood group that that feels like whatever they're doing is working and, and maybe they have good data showing that it might be working. I think our responsibility as a district is to look at um, proposals that are brought to us and to evaluate them. We have to be innovative. We know that one size does not fit all as we move forward with education. So we have the ability to, uh, we're currently working on an innovation grant with the state. So what we heard today was an example of what started at a church and grew. And what I heard them say that for, if this has been in place for eight years, and for six of those years, there was not funding. They figured it out, but they kept going and going and going. So we are always willing to listen. But I want to go back to our curriculum management audit, because one of the things it said in the curriculum management audit was we got a lot of stuff going on, and we were not doing a good job evaluating that. So it's not like now you can just hand us something on a piece of paper and we'll say, oh, that's the best idea in the world. Or what's worse is when we go away to conferences and we come back and we're just like, let me tell you what I heard about it, let me tell you what I learned. There has to be a process in place. Are we willing to listen? Absolutely. It's our responsibility to listen because our goal is to make sure that we reach every student. That doesn't mean that every student can be reached the same way. Uh, interesting thought that I was coming up with last night about innovation. Is there enough private funding for innovative things that are happening in education? I know, for example, uh, there's, there's initiatives that Humana and UPS are involved with. Um, I'm curious if there's enough private funding for really innovative things in, in education in, in the district. I'd like to address that just really quickly and then I'll um, defer. Um, there's a lot of private money being poured into education right now. I think the one of the issues is, and Ms. Porter referred to this, is is that money um, 
what we need at this time. So the thing to look at when money is being given to public education, what are the agendas that are tied to that money? And so one of the things that I was thinking about as you were talking is the parent involvement research is pretty clear that authentic and engaged parents uh, can make a difference in children's math and science scores. Uh, but we have a difficult time uh, authentically engaging parents. What is? It's not laminating. It's not coming up to school and uh, you know helping kids get to uh, class on time. Although those things are certainly helpful, but authentically engaging parents uh, in decision making um, makes a difference. And so the private money, um, I would say, we could always use money in education. Never want to turn it away. But we need to carefully inspect the agendas that are attached to that. And then if money is going to be given for public education, ask the communities, the teachers, the principals that are working in those schools that know the contextually specific answers and maybe don't have the resources to start uh, building the things like we mentioned that uh, they want to build in the first place. And so that's my one caveat about uh, private funding. Um, Along the same lines of funding, we talk a lot about, well, if education was was successful, that, w- that would fix so many other things. Or, or if uh, we, our education system was really good, it would, it would fix a lot of problems we have with the economy and a lot of other things would fall into place. But what's, what's the issue of um, not just, and this might sound like a dumb question, just throwing a lot of money to ed- education? Why not just throw a lot of money at education. I know there's a lot of agencies and a lot of people competing for funds, but what do you think has been the, the major issue of, of uh, not making that more of an issue? I, I mean, I'm feeling the, the urge to address this. Um, <laughs> you know, the argument that that I looked at, one of the arguments in the dissertation that I did on uh, why turnaround schools was the chosen solution for this moment in history. Uh, The argument to start closing schools and firing principals and getting rid of teachers is we've had since 1965 to fix low-performing urban and rural schools uh, with Title I, and we failed to do it. So therefore, the analogy that we use is that we have complacent teachers and complacent principals that just don't have the courage to do what's necessary for kids. Well, you know, the money aspect, when you cut broader social policy and take money out of social policies that support these communities and then put the uh, impetus on schools to do it by themselves. So, I mean, you can't have a conversation about money in schools until you start looking at the social policy. We just had a conversation in class that in Texas, communities and schools are kind of like the FR, the Friskies here in Louisville that are the social workers, the liaisons to the community. Well, in Texas, we cut communities and schools. So you can give us more money to public education. We could throw a bunch of money at it. But at the same time, the society around the school building is taking away funds from initiatives that really make a difference in communities that get kids to school with healthy teeth. They get kids to school, get kids to school without earaches, so that they can learn, or fed, so they can uh, concentrate on on the lessons at hand. So I think that's a complicated, uh, a complicated question. I can't help. This is one too where I spent a lot of years working in policy around this area. And so when you mention Title One, and I'm thinking of the 14 billion dollars a year that's in in Title One of ESEA, and there's a one percent set aside within that for the parent engagement piece. Right. And if you can so, just define these. 
I'm uh, sorry. Oh, so the Elementary and Secondary Education Act. No Child Left Behind. Act. Yeah, which we had No Child Left Behind was the name of the bill that actually reauthorized ESEA, which was originally written in 1965, as he mentioned. But there is a 1% set aside for the parent engagement piece there. So, I mean, when you start thinking about what a, I mean, we, you think about policy and, and what's important, you follow the dollars, right? And so in that big system, thinking about, well, how much emphasis is put on the parent piece of that, I think that is when you start talking about throwing money at it, I think he makes a great point about, well, look at where the money might ought to go to help. Because as I mentioned, again, I, how exact it is if our children are spending 90% of their time outside of the school building, then we have to think about what supports are being funded there. I'd like to uh, open it up to questions in just a second, but I want to go down the line and just, uh, Antonio, we can start with you, Mr. Payton. Sure. Um, just answer the question of what you need from your perspective, um, you know, the city and the schools at the board level, um, what you need as, as a person working in education in your area and what you realistically think can be delivered. So... What I saw today at this meeting that we had, that was at St. Stephen's, and uh, one of the things that we need is to see that outpouring from the community, from the 70% plus of the folks who maybe don't have children in the schools, standing up and saying, we want to be engaged in this. I know someone's in here tonight handing out stuff around volunteering for uh, math tutoring program. Those are the things that we need to see. I mean, we talk about being a compassionate community. That's being compassionate, standing up and helping out in that piece and the lifelong learning piece. This all ties into the health. This is what we want to see. And so what do we expect? We expect to see folks be engaged at that level. I mean, we, I think the mayor likes to set a high bar for people giving back and helping kids and ourselves reach our full potential. I mean, that's what we expect. Thank you, Mr. Carpenter. Uh, I'm going to echo some of what he said. I mean, we need an energized and passionate community. I'll give you an example. In Austin, Texas, where I went to graduate school, we could get a lot of people out to run a 5K or a 10K. But could we get those same groups of people out to volunteer in schools, to tutor after school? So it's walking the walk. If this is a community priority... If this is something as a community we're saying is not acceptable, that the lowest performing school is the responsibility of the, the parents in the community that attend the highest performing school, if that's truly, I think that's another piece in all communities that are struggled with. So where I was a principal, you know, we were considered an excellent district, but guess what? We had three low performing schools that performed low every year, and it was the same kids that were performing low every year. So I didn't consider that a successful community. So I think it is a a true community attack on um, getting kids to where they need to be. And once we can get that energized and passionate group and it's walking the walk and not just talking the talk and then sticking with it and sustaining that effort and energy, I truly, when you asked about a deliverable, there's no reason that all of our schools here in JCPS can't be high-performing. I tell my students every class, there are schools across the nation that serve challenging contexts that are exceeding expectations and doing fantastic jobs. And I think we have the right team on board. I think there's a lot of change, and that's tough for communities sometimes. But I think collectively, when you look at all the different entities that have started to say this is important to us, 
I have no doubt that, that we can't do great things in this community as far as schools. Thank you, Ms. Porter. I think what we need is uh, for everyone to understand that education is not a nine-to-five job. It's 24-7, and it's everywhere you go that there's something that can be done that pertains to educating our children. A lot of us, our children have been through the system, but the community has to be engaged to help us with what we're doing in the at the local school level. And what does that mean? That means that if you see a child, you say, how was school today? What did you learn at school today? What do you need help with today? Good job. A lot of times all we talk about is... Um, not saying positive things to students, not saying positive things to staff. People are working really, really hard, and they're supposed to do that, but children like to be encouraged. And what we know for sure is that for children, the center of their universe is their parent. School starts at home before they come to us. And I'm looking in this room, and I, I know there's some parents in here. I've seen them work with their children with math, and I know that they know that it's very important, and they do it all the time. So it's about helping support what we're doing in the schools during the time that they are in school, but they, we need more than that. We need longer time for instruction. So if everyone will assume that everybody can do something, we're not asking one person to carry the load. We're asking everybody to do something. And that means that we focus on education all of the time in some form and some format and to encourage. We talk about out-of-school time. What we can, can we do to get more of that set up? We have to work together as a community. It can't just be the school district. It can't just be the faith-based organizations. It can't just be the universities. It has to be all of us and everybody holding up their hand and signing up and saying, this is what I'm willing to do. I pledge to tackle this and make it positive experience for our students. I heard the, uh, similar things as far as changing the culture. Do you think Louisville, Jefferson County is at that line to where people will um, commit to that idea of we are a community? Has it ha and has it, hap has it even happened in the past? And are we there at this point? And this is just for anybody. Sure. I, again, I moved to Louisville 23 years ago and um, certainly have paid attention to education for 17 of those 23 years. But I can certainly say I, from different corners of the community, you're starting to hear more about it, whether it's 15,000 degrees, whether it's 55,000 degrees, whether it is out of school time, I'm, we're hearing it more and more. And I think a program like this is actually evidence of the fact that this is coming up to the top. Thank you. Um, I'd like to open it up to questions. If, if anybody has something to ask, yes, please. Uh, 
And Tony, you and I talked about this on the phone a little bit about pre-K. Some cities do actually fund pre-K univer- or have universal pre-K, correct? Or, or? Not that the cities are funding, but some states certainly okay. you know, step in and provide much more of the pre-K. And as I mentioned earlier, I mean, preschool is one of those things. It's Preschool is also like out-of-school time, and it's also similar to adult education. It isn't a system, per se. There's a diverse set of providers that you may have varying degrees of quality, varying degrees of staff qualification. But I think that is, I mean, that to me is one of the most important statements here in thinking about what it is as we, whether it's a parent, you know, someone you see at church or a coach working with saying, what, what's my interaction with this child that's going to help them as they move forward? I'm thinking about, uh, I believe you all, I mean, Jefferson County Public Schools may this year know uh, ahead of time where the kids are going to go to kindergarten, if you're going to know, like, what school they'll be assigned to. I mean, this is at a transition period. Even parents that are intimidated, they worry at those transition times, and that's an opportunity to get them and say, you know what, your kid's coming here. Here are the things that in eight or nine weeks from now – they're going to be learning or expected to learn. I think it's anything that we can do to reach those parents before the kids reach the front door of the school building, I think that's a great investment. Is it difficult, though, to keep track of things that aren't in your system? I mean, oh, pre-K is, is... Oh, again, yeah, it's... Because there's so many different types, and, and, and they're all over the place, it seems like. Um, and I think when we talk about daycare centers, there are many daycare centers. And I know that Metro United Way tries to reach out to daycare centers to provide training uh, to staff. But the question is, what is that training? What does it look like? And how does that correlate to what children really need to know when they come to kindergarten? So can we do a better job of that? Absolutely. We must do a better job of it. And wouldn't it be great if you rode by the Yum Center and there was a big sign up there saying what kids should be do- knowing when they walk in the door to kindergarten? If we could just hit it every place we can, whether it's, you know, billboards, whether it's radio, because these are things. It used to be a time that when uh, babies were born, you'd put a T-shirt on and say, this is the, the little shirt, this is the year I go to college, and you give parents a packet to take home with them. So there are a lot of things that we need to do better because we know that if our children are not reading on grade level by the time they're at third grade, that, that they're going to have a hard time being successful in school. But the bigger issue is if they're not ready for, uh, for kindergarten, then they're starting out behind. So we've, we've got a lot of work to do, and we are talking about that. We are not satisfied that we are where we need to be, and it would be great if we had a way, a process to hit all the daycare centers and say, these are the things that students need to know. It would be great if the daycare centers could talk to the kindergarten teachers because it's like now we have professional learning communities in the schools where teachers are talking at grade level. And you may have said this before I got here, but it's working. So if we could have professional learning communities with daycare and kindergarten teachers, then everybody would be on the same page. Can we do that? Absolutely. Do I have the plan as to how we can do it? I don't. But if we do that, our students will be better prepared and they won't be so far behind. We don't want our students to be far behind. We want them to come to us on grade level. And if not, we want to get them there as quickly as possible because third grade is critical. Thank you. Um, Yes. As a pastor, I, I hear questions that don't come out in forms like this because people are not here. Sometimes it's great. Today I've had I've been involved. This is the second educational kind of environment 
what people are, uh, are talking about when they, you say they're ratcheting the whole thing up. What I hear is very simplistic, and I'm going to ask this question to anybody. Some parents in the neighborhood where the schools are said to be underperforming want to know, why then can't the best teacher be in those schools? That's a very simple question, and, and, and I hear it all the time. And I want to know if anybody wants to tackle that question. Is it a question? Who stops it? Who starts it? How does it happen? Best teacher. Most underperforming school. What? How do you tackle that? How do you answer that? I think, and when you start talking about best teachers versus not best teachers, that as a teacher, I don't think anybody gets up in the morning and brushes their teeth and says, I'm not the best teacher. The question becomes, we have to, we have to analyze where teachers are. And then if they're not where we need them to be, then we have to work harder to provide professional development to them so that they are on track. One of the most wonderful things that's happening, and I'll go back to the professional learning communities, everybody is clear of what the expectations are of them. If they don't understand it, if they don't know how to work with me in math and somebody else can work with me well in English, then they talk about that. We have something called data walls, where on these walls, you can look on there and you can tell exactly where I am. But we have to talk among ourselves. Professional development is critical. We're never too old to learn. We have to embrace new ideas. We have to understand that everyone does not learn the same way. And how do we reach students? That's, that's our responsibility. So it's hard for me to respond to the best teachers because it's our goal that all of our teachers are the best teachers. Now, are we there? Probably not. I'm not going to sit here and say that. I don't live in the land of Oz. You know, so but it's about getting us to where we need to be. And how do we do that? We do that by evaluation, by looking at what we're doing, by people talking to each other, by professional learning communities. That's just one suggestion. I want to address that from a leadership preparation perspective because we had this very honest conversation in class a couple of classes ago of, you know, I do believe in growing every teacher, but there is a point also that as an administrator, you're given the responsibility of moving those teachers out that don't need to be working with kids. Um, but it takes collective courage. It's not enough that in this district that I, you know, um, this teacher needs to be gone. Well, I don't have time to document that the way I need to this year. And so, you know, what happens next year? That teacher goes to another school and gets another group of 30 or 40 students. And so it's going to take, you know, I talk about from a U of L perspective, you know, every person that goes through the EDD cohort making a, you know, a compact together that we're not going to pass teachers around to each other that don't need to be in front of kids, that we're going to grow the ones that need to be grown. But those individual adults that it's just not, it's not in their cards to make a difference in kids' lives, then we need to be courageous together and make sure they can find another profession where they're not affecting the lives of our children. Um, oh, <laughs> let's just go all the way to the back. Uh, yes, with the red jacket. Yeah, you. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs>
bound to Tiberias. And they went, and they were bound, but it was about 90% thing to be quite smuggled. Okay? Well, now, they're supposed to be bound and sealed by social and economic status. Now, Frazier is 97% thing to be quite smuggled. And they're busing some kids to Frazier. And they see they're busing kids to quite smuggled. Kids who are schooled with 97% thing to be quite smuggled. There's probably another half a dozen. If you look at Bulletin Magazine, that they publish all their school information. There's a half a dozen or more elementary schools that are up at 90% thing to be quite smug. There's quite a few that are down in the 30, 20, and even teens. Well, one of the big things that drives success in the school is how people, people, how, how poor the people are who go. I mean, you know, economically poor. And uh, it seems to me that whenever that if a, if, if there's supposed to be some effort to balance or integrate the schools by social or economic status, that's not happening when you've got all these schools that are 90% thing to be quite frankly about 70 or 20, 30 or 40. And, and I, I don't understand how that works because I don't think that those kids who are at Frazier, you know, I know the people there and they're, they're working hard and doing their, you know, their partnerships and so on and so forth, but it's very difficult when every person at that school, you know, is basically you know, worried about whether they're going to get next meal. I'm curious as to why there's such a disproportionate, you know, while we have such schools so full of really poor kids, economically speaking, and others that aren't. That's a, a big mathematical question, too. Um, I think, yeah, please. Um, what you've said, we've, we've heard, and what we do as, as we d develop cluster arrangements and those kinds of things, those are the, the things that we look at. So what I think we've heard tonight, someone will go back and look at that. Um, one of the things that, that society continues to embrace is that children can't learn if they're on free and reduced lunch and if they are from single-parent families. And once upon a time, I mean, I'm older than most, uh, when we went to school, we didn't know who was on free and reduced lunch, and we didn't know who came from a single-parent family. And what we know for sure is that every child that walks in the door wants to learn, and every parent wants them to learn. We have changed our breakfast program in many of our schools so that you don't know who's on free and reduced lunch because you provide breakfast to the entire room, and everybody sits down and has breakfast at the same time. One of the things that we must do is we must... We know that those things exist called free and reduced lunch, called single parent uh, families, uh, special needs children. But what we must do as a public school system is we must educate everybody that comes in the door. And we can do that. But I heard what you said, Dr. Radoski heard what you said. We'll go back and look at, at our cluster numbers. The board asks for that. We look at all of that information all the time. But I, I would hope that um, as you talk about being a colorblind society, that we become a society where we assume that whoever walks in that door will learn because we're there to teach them. But thank you for that. And I see Dr. Radoski making a note. So we're going to check on it. So thank you for bringing that up. Yes. Child have an opportunity, therefore, 
to be successful at Shawnee versus Manual versus Valley. I'm a principal in a different district, but I live here and my kids go to school here. And I hear the, the challenges that folks from Valley, folks from Frost face. And one of the, the, the common themes seems to be that it's, there's absolutely inequitable arrangements that are put in place here. Um, do, you, do you care to comment? Well, I, I don't know if he has something to add to this question. Oh, I do. Um, I, uh, I moved here from Missouri in 88 and entered the fifth grade in JCPS. And in Missouri, there was no magnets. There was one curriculum. Everybody shared the same thing. When I came here for fifth grade, I was a year ahead of JCPS. I was immediately moved into advanced programs just because I was a year ahead. Uh, and I bring this up now because my third grader just passed the advanced program test. JCPS still seems to be operating two school systems. You've got the advanced program, which generates enormously successful people, millions of dollars in scholarships, fills up manual high schools, fills up Eastern, fills up Valley. You've got the traditional system, fills up May. Very successful schools. Everybody else is here for base school. The other question I have is, when I came here, we were shocked by how short the school day is. The school day in Jefferson County is an hour less than it was in St. Charles County, Missouri. We also, are, uh, as a parent now, I'm concerned with the amount of time my children are in school. We had a winter break in November. They were only in school three weeks in November because of the winter break. We've got two spring breaks. We had one at the end of February, and then another week off at the beginning of April. How are these kids learning if they're not in school? Yeah, Thank I you. think we've got multiple questions. So in all fairness, I think if you would give us your question again, we will attempt to um, answer that. And I think that they are related questions, but they're to me, they appear to be two different questions. So if you would restate your question for us, please. One of the things that we are is, is we're a district of choice. And by choice, students get to choose in some cases and in some other cases they are assigned to schools. Uh, it's not our goal to have a district of some top schools and some bottom schools. We would like to have all of our schools be exceptional schools. But the reality of it is if you have 10 numbers and you write them on a page, one of them is going to be at the top of the list, and the, another one's going to be at the bottom of the list. We're working to make all of our schools exceptional schools. Because it is a choice system, students get to apply by way of magnet applications, and other students are assigned based on the new formula that we're using working with Dr. Orfield. So it's not our goal to have uh, a system of schools at the top and schools at the bottom. Our goal is for all of our schools to be 
performing schools, no low performing schools, and we're, we're working to get to that. But the choice system is in place in Jefferson County for a reason, so that uh, students do have a choice as, as to where they go to school. The magnet process is in place. Everyone that applies to a magnet program does not necessarily get into that program because some schools are oversubscribed. So I think the answer is our goal is not to have any schools at the bottom of the list. That's what we're working to not have, if, if that helps answer you, your question. The other gentleman asked a question about why do we have the hours in the day? Why don't we have a longer school day? Well, I guess that's something the district could discuss and make a determination about and talk about. You know, Some of the things that we've talked about is extended time, uh, Saturdays and those kinds of things. But that's not the direction that we have gone at this point, but that's not to say as we talk about being innovative and what can we do to provide instruction for all students, certainly we can have conversations about that. Uh, you talked about your breaks, the winter break, the other break and the spring break. The break that um, I believe was in February, that was not intended to be a winter break. That was intended to be an opportunity for students who needed extra help to be at their schools getting that extra help. For whatever reason, people tack that on as the winter break. That was not the intent at all, and we had a long conversation about that when we developed the calendar. Some schools did exceptional work with providing services to students. Some schools did not. Some schools uh, have now said to us that perhaps they needed the resources to pay for buses. So we're, we're evaluating what happened. But I do know that in some instances, not in every school, but in some schools, that there was enhancement and additional instruction provided for students to who needed that. And it was a, it was a new concept for us to embrace. But we did not put that week in there and call it winter break. I mean, that may have been what people used it for. I got an email from someone that said that they took their children to visit their grandmother during the winter break, that that week was provided for extra instruction. Uh, I just want to, the gentleman mentioned AP, and I think, I just want to make a quick comment about that. That's, a, that's about expectation. I mean, it's, you know, our kids become what that which we expect. And one of the things in that article today in the paper I was happy to see was this growth in the number of students enrolled in AP because I think that happens at the school building level where that can be, you know, encouraged and pushed, but that's about expectation. And so that was refreshing to see today. Well, Really short. Just really short. This is why meetings like this are very important because um, I study discourse and rhetoric and narratives and the f and and you know 
saying something as trivial, and, and your comments are important, but babysitting at these other schools is really harmful to the great things that are happening in those schools and the rigor of instruction that are happening in those schools. And then secondly, um, we need to educate parents like you about all the different things that are happening beyond AP to enrich the lives of our students. Um, and so this type of forum is just a start. It's really extending this conversation into the future and having some serious, not always pleasant, you know, feelings are going to get hurt, but having some educative conversations about what is happening in our schools. When we hear negative things in the media, how do we confront that with the positive things that are happening in the schools? I see, I follow Twitter religiously and my students tease me about it. I see more negative things about people that may have never been in the schools, but had a poor experience as a child or moved here 10 years ago and they had an experience. And the reality is, is that uh, most of the schools, all of the schools, there are people in those schools that are working their tails off to provide the education needed for students. But we need to celebrate that. We need to talk about the complexity of that. And then as a group, we need to confront that and decide what we're going to do to make things better. Well, to respect everyone's time, I know there's a lot of, of questions out there. Um, I, I would like to end and just say thank you so much for joining us, and thank you all for, for coming out. This is I'm really blown away by how many people came out, um, especially on the night of the first game. But hey, uh, well, thank you again to my, to my guests, and, and um, hope to see you in the next one.